Thank you, Joel. I, I asked Joel if he'd sing that more like a special. If people wanted to sing, you could sing. But um, what a great, what a great song, huh? And just, I love that imagery of that. This is the day we celebrate where Jesus kind of came and took death and arrested it and said, "You guys are all free. You're free." We do some really crazy things. In some ways, Easter is the Super Bowl of all our holidays with regard to the Holy Week and, and with regard to our, our biblical calendar. And we do some crazy things around our Holy Days. For instance, we, I don't know, um, you know, kids, let's see the next one here. Yeah. In fact, I would be afraid too. This obviously is my older brother and myself um, years ago. 1958, Easter Bunny portraits became popular in the U.S. 1959, child psychologist offices are invented. <clears throat> Why do we do that? When we have this incredible story and in, in truth to proclaim. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, would you? We're going to pray and ask God to speak in these moments. It is my desire, Lord, as we bow our heads in your presence and we invite you to speak to our hearts. You're here. You've been moving. We, we worship you. And now we also open our hearts that you might meet us wherever we're at. Thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, over the past five to ten years with my parents who are aging and we've been moving them from their home and, and we've experienced all the way from assisted living care to nursing homes to memory care and, and even hospice care, uh, some of the things that I read recently by a man named Atul Gwande, some of you may have read the book Being Mortal, is something I wish I would have had five to ten years ago. In his insightful best-selling book, he describes how in our attempt to care for people through regulating institutional routines and in this regimenting of safety procedures for those who are elderly, he says we are actually squeezing the life out of people we are trying to help in many of those facilities. And as a medical doctor, he, was in, he has really an interesting perspective. He writes in his introduction these words, I learned a lot of things in medical school, but mortality wasn't one of them. Our textbooks had almost nothing on aging or frailty or dying. How the process unfolds, how people experience the end of their lives, and how it affects those around them seems besides the point for the medical doctor. The way we saw it, the purpose of medical schooling was to teach us how to save lives, not how to tend to their demise, not how to help a person end their life well. It was all about keeping the physical body alive through all kinds of regulations of safety and whatever health measures we could take. So in a, in a certain chapter in his book, in chapter 5, there's a story that he tells. It's called, titled, A Better Life, and it's about a man named Dr. Jim, uh, Bill Thomas, who stood against this prevailing sanitized culture of what is known as a deadening over-regulization. And, and Thomas, in his story, is about what he calls the great experiment, which was known by the people that he was working with. Back in 1991... In the tiny town of New Berlin, in, in, in New York State, upper New York State, a young physician named Bill Thomas performed an experiment. He didn't know what he was doing. He was 31 years of age, less than two years um, from his residency as a family medicine doctor. He had just taken a, a new job as the medical director of Chase Memorial Nursing Home, a facility with about 80 severely disabled elderly residents people with Alzheimer's and, and some kind of physical impairments, cognitive disabilities, and other things. 
And the staff at Chase saw nothing especially problematic about the place that they were working in. But Thomas, with these newcomer eyes, saw despair in every room. The nursing home depressed him. He wanted to fix it. And so at first he tried to do what any good doctor would try and do. He tried to figure out, as a doctor would in their own training, how do you take this place devoid of spirit and energy? And and he suspected there's probably some kind of unrecognized conditions or some kind of improper medications that are, are probably not being given the way they should. And so he began doing all kinds of things where he was doing physical exams for, for a period of time, physical exams. He, he He ordered scans and tests. He changed their medications. But after several um, months and weeks of investigation and alterations, he accomplished little except for driving the medical bills of that institution sky high and the nursing staff crazy. Some of you nurses know exactly what that's like. And so one day the nursing director talked to him and told him to back off. I was confusing care with treatment, she told me. He didn't give up, though. He came to think the missing ingredient in the nursing home was life itself. And he decided to try this this new experiment and to inject life into this home. The idea came up was as mad and as naive as it was really brilliant. He actually got the residents and the nursing staff to go along with him. You see, before he came to Chase Memorial Nursing Home... Right out of med school, he was an ER doctor. He, he wasn't crazy about the, the hours of ER. It was draining. And then at a certain point, he said, you know, when he was in that ER thing, he needed something for his life, so he moved to a farm. And in that farm, it was filled with life, and it gave him life. And he actually became more of a farmer than a doctor. He was just doing the medical stuff. Until one day, he said, I just can't continue these nights. I'm sick of working the hours I am. So he took a job in this nursing home. And it was a day job, predictable hours. And he thought, how Hard could it be? Yet from the first day on the job, he felt the stark contrast between the the giddy, thriving abundance of life that he experienced on his farm and the confined, institutionalized absence of life that he encountered every time he stepped through the doors of the place he worked. And it gnawed on him. And the nurses told him, you know, you'll get used to it. But he couldn't. And over the weeks... As he got to know the nursing residents, he began to realize how real these people were, people that he had grown up with in similar jobs, teachers, shopkeepers, housewives, factory workers, people just like himself. So with these everyday, ordinary, working-class people, he, in his mind, was convinced there was something better, something possible, something more than this lifeless, dreary Existence. So acting on little more than instinct, he decided to try to put some life into the nursing home the way he had done in his own home, by literally putting life into it. He thought if he could introduce plants, animals, and children into the lives of the residents, filling the nursing home with them, maybe it would bring some changes. So he went to Chase's management and he started laying out his plans for his proposal. He said, let's go ahead. These I want to fight and, and combat these three plagues of boredom, loneliness, and helplessness. And, and the way he proposed to do it is he laid it out for them and they were kind of just listening a little bit. He said, you know, we'll tear up the lawn out there and we'll put in vegetable gardens and, and, and fruit gardens and, and, and we're going to bring some animals in. And, and, and they kind of slowed him down. And remember, this is in 1991. And it's what Thomas and the others eventually began to call the great experiment 25 years ago. 
Now, here's a glimpse of the conversation. I want you to hear a glimpse of the conversation as he tried to talk some people into bringing life into this. He's meeting with the head administrator, Robert Halbert, who actually hired Thomas, and he's also meeting with the director of nursing, the activities director, and also the social worker who directed all the social work. And as they were meeting, they kept rolling their eyes back and forth as Halbert, the person who hired him, the administrator, was in conversation with them. And Halbert told him right from the beginning, he says, you know, animals are really tricky. We've tried them. Some of them don't have very good personalities. We've tried them, a couple of them through the years. And in fact, health and safety issues, regulations say one dog, one cat. Well, Thomas was not one to kind of be sold lightly. So he said, let's try two dogs. Halbert said, the code doesn't allow that. Thomas said, let's just put it down on paper. There was silence for a moment. Even that small step pushed against the values and the heart of not just state regulations that they would have to come up against, but what nursing homes believe they principally existed for, health and safety of elders. Howard said, all right, all right, I'll put, I'll put it down. I'm not, I'm not into this as much as you are, and they're all sitting around this table. Now, now you mentioned something about cats, Thomas, and he said, yeah, yeah, well, well, some people aren't dog lovers, so, you know, they like cats. And so Howard said, okay, you want dogs and cats? I said, well, yeah, yeah let's, put, let's just put it down for discussion purposes. And Albert said, okay, I'll put a cat down. Thomas said, no, 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 uh, not, not a cat. We have two floors, so we need two cats and two floors, on both floors. We want to propose to the health department two dogs and four cats. Yeah, 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 just put it down. Albert, all right, I'll, I'll put it down. We're kind of getting off base. This is never going to fly. So one, one more thing. Thomas said, what about birds? We need birds? Yeah, yeah, we need birds. Bill told him, he said, Bill, the code clearly says no birds allowed in nursing homes. It's just, there's just clear as can be. But what about birds? Well, what about birds, says Halbert? He says, Thomas, just, just picture it. You know, it's like January, it's February, and you look out the, look out the window right now, and, and what's some of the noises you hear? And a couple of the other ones chimed in. Well, we hear some people moaning. We hear TVs. They were kind of naming all these different things. He goes, no, I mean positive noises, noises of life. And he goes, you mean, someone said, you mean like bird song? He goes, yeah, bird song. And so, Halbert, with his pen ready to write, said, okay, how many birds do you need to create bird song? Let's put down 100. (laughs) 100 birds in this place? You got to be out of your mind. Have you ever lived in a house that has two dogs and four cats and 100 birds? No, no, but it, it would be worth trying. And so Halbert said, I, I, I want to think out of the box. I really do, Dr. Thomas. But I don't know if I want this to look like a zoo or smell like a zoo. I really can't picture doing this. And he said, just would you hang with me? And he said, well, you've got you to gotta make sure there's some merit to this. And that was all the opening Thomas needed because in the next year or so, they went again and they lobbied the state. They took time to get regulations. They got grants and they got all this stuff. And the great experiment of infusing life into this place began to take place. At first, the staff complained about the extra work, but gradually people started accepting that filling Chase with life was everyone's task. And they did so not because of any rational set of arguments or or compromises, but because the effect on the residents soon became impossible to ignore. The residents began to wake up and come to life. People who he had believed weren't able to speak started speaking. People who had become completely withdrawn, non-ambulatory, 
started coming to the nurse's station and saying, I'll take the dog for a walk. All the parakeets were adopted, 100 of them. And they were named by the residents. And they say, the lights turn back on in people's eyes. Because someone stepped into that world, drear, dark, controlled, regulated, and infused life. Death has an amazing grip on people. Whether we're thinking about it right now or it's in the back of our mind. Or when something happens and it becomes very front and center to you. Jesus came to Bethany, a small little village just east of Jerusalem. It was kind of a bedroom community. It was there where his good friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary lived. And he had heard just before coming there that Lazarus was soon to die. And he told his disciples, you know, don't worry about it. Lazarus will sleep and we'll go visit him. And they thought, oh yeah, he's just going to fall asleep and he's going to, you know, he has an illness, he'll sleep, get better, and then we'll visit him. But Jesus, as it says in Scripture, knew that he, he wasn't talking about that. He, He knew that he would die. He knew his good friend Lazarus was dying. So he purposely chose to stay away until Lazarus died. And he arrived just in time for Lazarus' funeral. The customary four days had taken place since Lazarus' death. The, the four days were to ensure that the person was truly dead. You, you know the expression, saved by the bell? It's not just a TV program. It's the whole idea that when someone would die in days before, they would, they would put the, uh, a string in there and they could ring the bell if they came back to life. You were actually literally saved by the bell. Lazarus was stone cold dead. And so Jesus, on his way to the city, to the village, and he's making his way to the tomb, is told separately on his, on his, on his way there by Martha and then Mary a little later, if only, if only you had come earlier, in the midst of their despair and their dreariness and the sense of their loss, if only you'd come earlier, everything would be different if you could have just got here. You missed it by that much. To listen again to another conversation. As in in another time, in another place, more real than what I just read, someone came and, and it wasn't just a great experiment, but he was bringing the great experience that we can all live with. And in this conversation, he began to infuse life. John 11, 22 through 27, Martha runs to greet Jesus and when she hears he's coming, in her heart she's full of despair. Jesus missed it. He had, he had stayed away just too long. Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would have not died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, and in her head I can hear, that, oh yeah, this is how it goes. Yeah, 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 I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. That's what she says. I, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said to her, as he infuses life into her, her mind for a second, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives believing in me will never die. Now, you may have heard that statement before, but listen to it again. Because Mary's having trouble believing this. Jesus is, in a sense, saying, put it down on paper in your, in your mind. Tuck it away in the folds and recesses of your mind for a moment, Mary. I ask you to put it there for a moment. Just give it a shot. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. 
the one who believes in me will live in, even though he dies. And whoever lives by believing in me, living, trusting, walking with him will never die. And then he just makes a little statement, which I think is a question not just for Mary and Martha. I think John was putting it in there purposely because he's looking at you. Do you believe this? With whatever limitation you might feel in your life, whatever sense of death or despair that's before you, whatever is going on in your heart, do you believe this reality that is beyond? Not some experiment. Jesus is calling us to something far deeper than a reality, an eternal reality that we are to live with all the time. Easter is the call of God through Jesus to think out of the box. It is a call to live in faith. Not about a life someday, but living and hearing the sounds of heaven today that will only increase and eventually become full. Even though you die, you will live. Jesus died that you might live, so, so live. I just want to share with you three implications of this little conversation. And the first is this. Jesus died so that you and I might live. So live, knowing this. Death is defeated. Probably what I like most about this passage is that interchange that you find in verse 22 through 27. Martha runs to greet Jesus, and and she says, oh, if you'd just been here, and and Jesus says, your brother will rise again. She goes, yeah, I realize that's going to be at the end of the day. You know, someday, way down, years from now. And, And... and Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am actually the living resurrection, full of life, everywhere I go. And, and listen to Martha's reply. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come to the world. I'll grant that. I don't get anything else. And I love it because from that point on, as she's tucked that little statement in her head, as she's written it down, so to speak, she is in for a real surprise. She had little to no idea just how able Jesus is to save, nor do we. Not just in the resurrection of the last day, but in a matter of moments, Martha would see the power of Jesus over death itself. I just want to share with you, you have no idea how God can be present with you in your circumstance. He may not change the circumstance, but he will be with you to overcome it in your heart. Listen to these words in John eleven thirty three through 44. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then one of my favorite Bible verses when I was a kid is John eleven thirty five, Because if you were doing kind of memory verse work, this was the one you wanted. Jesus wept. Anybody, anybody you know that was the one? Yeah, I'll memorize a verse. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind? Could that's the one who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? And then it says, you know, Jesus wept at the sight of how bound in fear all the people were at death. Not only was Lazarus bound in the clothes of death and in this tomb, but he looked out at everyone so captivated, so bound so entrapped in fear 
You see, Jesus had come from a place where life burst forward all the time. It was always present in heaven. He had that in, in the back of his heart and mind. And he comes to this world and he looks around and he looks specifically at this place and he sees the despair and he cannot help, but he looks out. He's not weeping because he can't do something. He's weeping because he's looking at our hearts in the way that we sometimes allow ourselves to be so bound in the present moment. And he saw their lack of faith and their father's love. And he saw their lack of understanding and his own ability to save. And all this despair and this bondage, this inability to see. John continues, Jesus once more, as he looked at this, was deeply moved. It's, just, it's almost a sense he sighs deeply. He came to the tomb and it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. By this time, there's a bad odor for he's been dead there for four days. In that kind of climate, in that kind of heat, it was sure. They have been filled with the smell of death. And Lazarus, his body decaying, Jesus standing outside the door, says to him, no, I want you to roll. He commands them to roll the stone away. They're hesitant, but they do it. John says, then Jesus, didn't I tell you that if you believe, if you kind of write it down, you kind of tuck it into your heart for a second, if you just believe, you will see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. I'm praying for people right now so they can understand our connection and what's going on here. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I just love this passage. Death is arrested. Death is defeated. Jesus stands, says, you know, open up that tomb. Nothing can, nothing can hold that person to death. Take the stone away. And it's as if he's calling someone who's sleeping. He had actually said that earlier to the disciples. He's sleeping, and that was what their mind... And I love this picture before, of Jesus before death. Everyone's afraid, but Jesus isn't. He, he's, he's not one bit afraid. His power over death is truly amazing. He merely calls like he's calling someone who's been asleep. It's kind of like Lazarus. You know, time to get up. I love the way the Bible again and again refers to death as sleep. Not in some euphemistic way that when we want to talk about death, it's just a nice way why they fell asleep or they passed away. Or you know how we talk so nicely about that? The Bible talks about it because that's exactly what it is. It's defeated. For all who believe, death is nothing more than sleep, and life to follow is nothing more than being called awake. Ephesians 5, 18, 5, 8, and 14, Paul writes, For you were once in darkness, but now those of you who have had a revelation and understanding, you have believed, you've kind of writ it, written it down, you've tucked it away in the fold of your heart, live now as children of the light. Live in this life, in the midst of this dying, with this knowledge. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And Jesus says, I'm the resurrection of life. Do you believe this? Are you willing to write it down? Maybe for the first time. Maybe God is speaking to your heart and he's just saying to you, do you want to hear my voice call you awake in your spirit right now? Some of you may need to be really thinking about this because 
You just, we never know when death is at our door. And when you do fall asleep, will you hear the voice of Jesus calling you awake? Jesus makes it really clear. Those who trust, those who believe will never die. Even though they die, they will never, they will live. Will you hear the voice of Jesus calling you? Do you hear the voice of Jesus calling you? It's really that simple. It's about believing in, in, in many ways. It's not, we get this all messed up. It's not about believing the right things. It, it, it really isn't about b- behaving in the right way. It's really one thing. It's do you believe in Jesus? What's that complicated? Anything more than that. Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he was, who was recorded who he was, so that when he came, at one point, not only did he roll a stone away and he called a person who was sleeping awake, but here is this Jesus who also has the stone rolled away where he was dead, and today we celebrate what? He's alive. He's risen. I remember with my grandmother when she passed away when I was just in high school, and I remember coming up to her casket and, and looking at her, and she just didn't look, you know, the same, but yet that was grandma, and... I remember at one point just looking at her and she looked like she was sleeping because sometimes she'd sleep, she'd kind of look a little bit like that. And so I just wanted to wake her up. Jesus can do that. Jesus did do that for her. Do you believe that Jesus has the power to forgive and remove your sin as far as Jesus is from the West? Do you believe that Jesus has the ability to free you from the grip of death? Do you believe that Jesus has the ability and the power in his word to wake you today forever into an eternal forever life with God? Live, because death is defeated. (laughs) Jesus has overcome it. That death is a doorway. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and life. The one who believes in me will live, and even though he dies. And I don't think he could be clear in this. Not only does Jesus defeat death, but he also makes it clear that you will live again. There is a sense that as you go through this sleep, it is just a doorway to this life that he has always intended for you to experience in its fullness. This, in many ways, is our great experiment here where we can begin to experience God, but it all comes into its fruition forever. And it's just a doorway. I sometimes wonder if Lazarus came out after experiencing somewhat the, the seeing the sense of heaven and he's called back and he's going, shoot, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to be here for Martha and Mary and all of my business partners and friends and stuff, but, oh, I'd rather be there. For the believer, death is a doorway, much better, to a much better life. I, I was, I, I've been contemplating whether to share this or not. But because it's just so fresh and I want this place to be authentic, I'm going to share. Last Friday, I left late that night, took a flight to Chicago to be with my mom who was in the hospital. And we were told that she had two hours, two days, two weeks. The doctor said we didn't know. And so I came and I spent time with her. And it was like, stayed overnight with her, had a restless sleep at 6.30 in the morning. She was, she has dementia, but she was lucid and alive awake. And I looked her in the eyes, and I just said, Mom, I love you. She looked me in the eyes and said the same. We talked for a little bit, and then she started feeling pain, and, and the pain medication put her into a place where she was sleeping. I had to come back for services for Sunday. And so this whole week has been back and forth, and um, I say this because I just want you to know, if you do not know the hope of being able to look someone in the eyes, first I'm just going to tell you, if you got accounts that need to be cleared up with someone, folks, do it. Live in love with all the best you can. Um, but last night, 
um, well, this early this morning, my mom's Easter born. She's in heaven with the Lord. And uh, I don't know how I'd live if I didn't know that death was a doorway where she is in a place right now in the presence of God with family and others. Folks, you've lost ones too. If you don't know this hope, I just challenge you to really think hard, not with just your head, but with your heart. And there's the last thing I'm going to say, because we're coming to the end here, and that is that um, death. One other thing that I want you to know about this is it's an opportunity. In six days, Jesus was going to die. He was entering Jerusalem on this donkey, and as he's running in on this donkey, can I just tell you, when Jesus was in the garden and he was sweating blood and he was, a, and he was deeply distressed, it wasn't because he was going to die. He predicted that. He told them he was coming back again. It wasn't about death. It wasn't, he, he lived his whole life dying. He left heaven and died considering equality with, with God, something that he didn't need to grasp. He, he died again and again. Every time he would share something of truth and people would shun him or they'd, they'd act like, like he was crazy or, or, or people would accuse him or they would spit on him or they would all he died again and again and the reason he kept dying again and again is because he knew there was a life yet to come he knew that he would live forever the thing he was afraid of was he was taking your sins so that you could live there are people who are going to sin against you there are going to be people who might not even know about god but you have this life right now and we've been had this whole series of how do you how do you experience pain so someone else's gain and i just want to challenge you folks those of you who believe in jesus this life your life your money your time your investment of any part of your life it is something that can be given for someone else because you will have life forever Don't try and grab all you can get now. Don't think in some ways it's all about now. Live and enjoy this life. But live with the perspective that death is defeated and it's a doorway to a better place and it's an opportunity for you, for others, even now, to die a bit to yourself so someone else might live. Now, I'm going to have a team play a video of a little boy that... um, Someone sent it to me. And I love this video because this little boy has experienced pain, but he acts a lot wiser than we do. In his pain, he has shifted something in his life because he wants his life to be used in such a way that it brings smiles to others. And I just go, knowing what we know, may this Easter be an opportunity. Maybe something shifts in your heart and you go, boy, I just want my life knowing that death defeated, knowing the doorway is to a better place, knowing I can, in this life, use any opportunity of death in order to increase someone else's benefit and smile. We end tonight with a little boy with enormous power, the power to lift spirits. Here's Steve Hartman on the road. It is every kid's worst nightmare. And six-year-old Jaden Hayes has lived it. Ah! Twice. First, he lost his dad when he was four. Then last month, his mom died unexpectedly in her sleep. I tried and I tried and I tried to get her away. Couldn't. Jaden is understandably heartbroken. Anybody can die. That's anybody. But there's another side to his grief. 
a side he first made public a few weeks ago when he told his aunt and now guardian, Barbara DeCola, that he was sick and tired of seeing everyone sad all the time. And he had a plan wow. to fix it. And that was the beginning of it. That's where the adventure began. <laughs> Jaden asked his Aunt Barbara to buy a bunch of little toys and bring them here to downtown Savannah, Georgia, near where he lives. Thank you, sweetie. So he could then... You want me to have it? ...give them away. Thank you, man. What is it you're doing? Well, I'm trying to make people smile. Rubber duckies, dinosaurs. Because those are the things that make people smile. Yeah. And what happens to their face? Really? Really. See that man right there? Jaden targets people who aren't already smiling and then turns their day around. You made me smile. He's gone out on four different occasions now, and he's always successful. It's to make you smile. Even if sometimes he doesn't get exactly the reaction he was hoping for. It is just so overwhelming to some people that a six-year-old orphan would give away a toy expecting nothing in return except a smile. Of course, he is paid handsomely in hugs. And his aunt says these reactions have done wonders for Jaden. It's like sheer joy came out of this child. And the more people that he made smile, the more this light shone. Jaden says that's mostly true. But I'm still sad that my mom died. I bet you are. This is by no means a fix. But in the smiles he's made so far, nearly 500 at last count, Jaden has clearly found a purpose. I'm counting on it to be 33,000. 33,000? Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big goal. Mm-hmm. You think you can make that goal? Uh-huh. I think I can. I think he just did. Steve Hartman on the road in Savannah, Georgia. And that's the CBS Evening News for tonight.